The following program is sponsored by Evangelical Life Ministries. Welcome to Liberty Action Alert with Greg Seltz. Sponsored by our friends at the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty here in Washington, D.C. A program that cuts through the chaos and confusion in the culture today by talking to kingdom citizenship, bold biblical principles for a robust public Christian life. And now your host, Dr. Greg Seltz. Good day, good day, Washington, D.C., and friends of the program all around the country. I'm Greg Seltz. Welcome to Liberty Action Alert, where every week we try to cut through the noise and take on the issues, especially the public issues that matter to you, people of faith. We try to rely on the wisdom of the Word of God for the sake of the culture and the mission of the church, or as we like to say here at the LCRL, we're trying to put our temporal liberties to work for the sake of the eternal liberties of God for all. Today on the Liberty Action Alert, we are privileged to have uh, Emma Waters, who is the research associate at the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome, Emma. Hi, thanks for having me on today. Well, I wish it was um, for good news, but you know we're having you on today just because um, the Respect for Marriage Act, so-called, is is being voted on, and we at the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty, we just think this is bad law. I mean, it's going to be pitting uh, people against each other for no good reason, and it's the state getting involved where it shouldn't, you know, where it doesn't belong. But it's even worse than that in a lot of ways. And I think I'm going to refer to an article that's by your own Roger Severino. And he talked about fact-checking seven claims by the defenders of the Democrats' same-sex marriage bill. And I know you are intimately involved with that as well. What is at stake? What what should people be praying about literally right now? It's a great question. So like you mentioned, the misnamed Respect for Marriage Act, or what I like to call the Disrespect for Marriage (laughs) Act, um, has the primary and explicit goal of overturning the Defensive Marriage Act passed a couple of decades ago. And so what that does is establish that a marriage is between a man and a woman, um, and that's remained in our public law, even with the Obergefell ruling of 2015. And so what the Disrespect for Marriage Act would do is explicitly overturn that and then redefine marriage to mean any two individuals who want to be married. But the problem is that they don't actually explicitly define marriage. They simply say that marriage is whatever a state considers marriage insofar as it's between two people. So they took out the concerns that there could be three-person marriages established, but it does pit states against states. So if California redefines marriage to be two men or two women, then that means that every other state has to take on that same definition. And that's effectively what this bill does anyway, right? By opening the door and expanding Obergefell into our public law, they've effectively done that. Um, So what we're looking at here on the first level is the affirmation of a lie. And so as Christians, right, like we know that Genesis all throughout to Revelation is very clear about the nature of marriage between one man and one woman, the purpose of marriage for the procreation of children, for the sanctity of the couple involved, and for their mutual pleasure and enjoyment. And it just throws that out the door, and it introduces this form of a union that cannot naturally procreate children. So just first level, it would be the affirmation of something that Christians in the United States know is objectively false. Let me jump in and and, and further that, because 
My biggest beef with this is not only, okay, I understand we've been dealing with this as church people all of our lives. I mean, we live in a libertine culture, sexually permissive culture, you know, and we preach God's call to to sexual chastity and, and, and purity in the bond of marriage and all those different things for the sake of your intimacy and all those. But this is about what's the government's role in this? And what bothers me so much is... The government doesn't grant the right of marriage. It never did. It actually limited the right of a man and a woman to marriage because their concern is the children. Why is the government getting into who do they think they are by defining this stuff and then redefining it at, at their will? Isn't that really the issue in, on top of all that you've just said? Yeah, it's a huge issue. And you're so right in highlighting highlighting the centrality of the children in this, because the reason that the government cares about marriage is because they care about promoting the safety and the flourishing of each of its citizens. And that right. includes its children. And for any of you who have done any studies on this, we know that children who are raised in same-sex unions, they do not fare as well emotionally, behaviorally, psychologically, even educationally. And then on top of that, the most dangerous place for a child to be is living in a home with an unrelated adult. And with same-sex marriage, that means that's inherent in it. And even when there are well-meaning, um, well-intending adults who enter into these unions, the risk is still there and the impact that it has upon the child is still there. And it opens the door then to commercial surrogacy, to in virtue of fertilization, and to other forms of creating and making a child that deviate from the natural order. And so this has all kinds of consequences that quite frankly, we're only starting to learn about as a bioethics issue from social science and what have you. And then on top of that, the GOP in its 2016 um, like memoranda on you know the family and here are our values, they signed something, and this was every member of the GOP saying that we believe that every child has the right to a mother and a father. Right. But the problem with this bill is that that completely undermines it because it says that children don't have a right to a mother and a father. They just have a right to one or two parents, be it two men or two women. And we know that's not the same. And we know that's not providing children with both the nurture and the care, as well as the play and protection that they require and receive from a mother and father. So even beyond religious means, Republicans are going back on a statement that they've held to since 2016 and even before then, and are now redefining what it actually means to care for children and the role of parents in the family. And from parental rights and school choice, right, and all the debates we're seeing in the school system to transgenderism to abortion, we know that this is so under attack right now. So there's no room to even hope for like goodwill on the part of policymakers right now when it comes to this. Gosh, I hadn't thought about that. There's still this compelling thing. Who am I that is related to my biological mother and my biological father? And now we're saying, well, that doesn't really matter. I mean, that's really, and the kids will get over it. And, and again, it's just, it's throwing our children into the middle of this stuff, using state power now to say, you can't stand against this. You cannot speak out against this. And I think that's what Roger's article, first of all, pointed out is that this bill is not about respect for marriage. It's about it's about disrespecting or making it harder for us to live out our view 
of marriage. And talk to that because a lot of people, they think we're exaggerating this point. Yeah. And I really wish that we were. Um, So the way the bill text is worded, it one protects the right for an individual to believe whatever they want about traditional marriage or same-sex marriage. And this is where the main problem with the bill comes in is that it doesn't actually protect an individual's right to act according to those beliefs, just to believe them. So I could believe that traditional marriage is between a man and a woman. But it doesn't actually protect my right to then act that out when it comes to my business, to my nonprofit, to my religious organization, right? Mm -hmm. And so individuals uh, across the left and the right have said, well, with the current Collins-Baldwin amendment, we're actually protecting religious rights because nothing in the bill will attack people of faith or their institutions. But the problem with that is that it provides a negative protection, not a positive protection. And so what we mean when we say that is that it basically says that nothing in this bill will require anti-discrimination lawsuits to come against you. But it doesn't actually say that you're protected from other institutions or individuals filing those lawsuits later on. So think of the 87,000 new IRS agents that have just been added this year. What it effectively means is that this bill will not require them to come after people of faith or their institutions. But should the bill pass and should it pass in, in its current text without the Senator Lee amendment, without that, then the IRS could file those anti-discrimination lawsuits. So this would affect an organization's tax exempt status. It could affect any government grants or licenses or um, accreditations they have. And it could also then affect a private adoption agencies, counseling services, foster care, any religious organization that wants to hold to traditional marriage between a man and a woman would then be subject to an entire host of anti-discrimination lawsuits. And we know how ferocious those are, and we know how long people have been waiting to attack religious institutions on these very grounds. And this would not only strip away all the protections they have, but it wouldn't actually provide any of the protections they're pretending that it would. Well, we're we're just flabbergasted at at this point that that people are taking this, you know, there are 12 senators that that kind of bucked us here on these things. And and again, they made this plea that well that we just think this is a fairness a bill and and I said, "Well, you've just defined our vi- you you just defined our view as bigoted. Our view is not bigoted. Our view is actually rooted in science, it's actually rooted in sociology, it's actually rooted in history and it's rooted in theology." And so, uh, you know, our, we can defend this and we can defend that it's the best thing for a child. You know, we've got psychological data on that as well. And so we're not going to cede this ground that you're doing us a service by protecting us when in reality, what you're doing is defining us as a nefarious agent in our own culture. And we're not going to do that. Well, again, um, you know, I guess I'm struggling with this. Why, why do these people think that that's what they're doing? Yeah, it's a good question. And clearly, we can't speculate exactly what's going on in their minds or what they're thinking. Um, But there are two very important things to point out here. The first is that since Obergefell, the status of same-sex unions, the benefits, the rights that they're accorded will not change at all if the Disrespect for Marriage Act is passed, which means that there's not actually an area where they are being discriminated against or are suffering because of their same-sex union currently in American law. And so nothing in this bill is actually rectifying a perceived error. It's not adding additional protections. Nothing changes. 
But what does change, as you pointed out, is all of the protections for religious institutions and religious individuals that are essential for the free expression and practice of religion in the United States. You can't have that and say, but you're not allowed to talk about the nature of marriage, which is the foundation of most of our society. Right. Like the, nothing remains the same after that. This is not good law, that this is bad law, right? That we shouldn't promote. Right. But it seems like this is marking a pretty big shift in the way that even Senate Republicans and conservatives conceive of marriage and the role of government in the United States. These are all individuals who, I mean, even like two years ago would have never thought about redefining marriage to include a same-sex union. I mean, in 2008, Barack Obama would not have even gone that far. Yeah. Um, but here we are in 2022, and you're starting to see this shift in how they conceive of marriage and they conceive of the role of the state that is deeply concerning because it's clearly not rooted in our nation's history. It's not rooted in the revelation of, of their faith, and it's not rooted in any conservative values. It's effectively just a capitulation to whatever the loudest party wants, even if it's the loudest minority. And also, like, just thinking about what is the role of law and what is the role of government, like, the law is a teacher, right? It forms right. and shapes our beliefs. So prior to Obergefell, only a very small percentage of Americans actually supported same-sex marriage. It was not something they could have gotten passed legislatively. It could not have been passed by popular vote. But they pushed it through through our judicial system, right? And so you can look at the polls like the months leading up to the Obergefell decision. And it's a very low percentage of Americans who were like, yes, this is what we need. And then after Obergefell, because the law is a teacher and it reorients us to a new compass and a new point, all of a sudden higher and higher numbers of Americans, conservatives and even evangelicals alike, has started to support gay marriage and really rethink the way they 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 think about this. Mm -hmm. And so what we're looking at here, I think, is the impact of that on our legislators and then further downstream than the impact that that's going to have for our churches, for our Christians, and for the youth that we're discipling and catechizing and raising up. We'll now be fighting against an even larger uphill battle. Well, you know, even Jesus you know, talks about marriage in, the, in its male and female, God created you perspective. So folks, that means even his words are going to be illegal uh, when these things pass. But, you know, I, I get back to, to the no nation, no nation can survive uh, the disillusion of marriage. And that's what we're seeing here. I've always said, I think if everything is marriage, then nothing is marriage. And that somehow seems to be the point of where we're going with this kind of libertinism in our culture, except there are real implications for that. I think C.S. Lewis said it this way, that there's you cannot have a, a, a new fundamental moral any more than you can have a new fundamental color because God is the one who has ordered these things. And I think we're at that point. I think we're looking at these fundamental things that we we can see all kinds of reasons to support it. And for just whatever reason we've decided, we're just gonna we're gonna say we can go it on our own and do as we please. What are some other issues that arise from this bill as it would be passed without the Lee Amendment? Um, and so one of the touchstone examples that my colleague Roger Severino has used is that of the Civil Rights Amendment of the 1960s. And so this initially was um, an anti-discrimination lawsuit, right, with very good ends and very good intentions for protecting what was undue discrimination at that time. And so while the legislation itself was fairly straightforward, it is completely redefined every aspect of 
of our society, from government ag agencies to um, federal law, state law, and even the way that we interact with each other on a person-to-person -person basis, because it changed the playing field of how we could interact with one another, who we could interact with, um, yeah, and, and like what was able to be defended in court or not. And so clearly that was a very good example of it, but it also outlines just how far reaching the implications of this sort of legislation is. Because there's nothing more powerful than the phrase discrimination when it comes to every single religious school is now going to be under attack. Every single business that wants to run private business, it's public business, according to a set of religious values, is going to be under under attack without any protections in this bill for them to say, no, no, we have like a religious liberty exception. You can't accuse us of discrimination. They're like the entire pocket of where religious institution exception that we've had throughout our law, throughout our history is gone. Um, so this is looking at the tax exempt status of our churches, of our synagogues, of our mosques, right? Like it's not even just Christians that are impacted by this. And this then also, of course, gets into every bit of accreditation, any licenses that we might receive from the government. And it means that if you want to then function and work with the government as it stands and all of the opportunities that it, it affords, which the government is a legitimizing force. So if you want to be a legitimate member or institution in society, you have this government approval that comes with it. But right. if you take away any religious liberty protections, then that means that any people of faith or any um, religious institution that wants to hold this traditional view will either have to capitulate and say, okay, fine, I guess we're going to hold it in most instances, but we can't say no to any same-sex discrimination cases. So this could be a teacher who's in a gay marriage, right? Um, mm -hmm. Who's bearing children through commercial surrogacy, who's teaching your children at your local Catholic school. Or this could be adoption agencies who, like we've talked about, know the sorts of situations that are best for children to thrive in, even in the second best uh, even in like the second scenarios of adoption. And this would mean that they would have no ability to say no or else risk losing all of their government licensure and taxism status and support. And these are just like the top line examples that yeah, come to mind. But the yeah. implications of this are, are are quite frankly endless because anything could be anything could be discrimination, right? The moment you change this, so anything could be a lawsuit. Let me just go to this too, though. Back when I was studying, I was at the University of Michigan. That's that's where I began my studies before I went into the ministry. And I remember I was in psychology class, and back in those days, they laughed at marriage. They thought marriage was an outdated institution. They thought marriage was, be, you know, passe. Uh, all these libertine, amoral relationships that I was told was these these are these are the new norm and everything. They didn't want anything to do with marriage. They thought marriage was ridiculous. They even called it misogyny. They called it all kinds of things. And so I'm always a little suspect as to now we have to talk about the right of marriage. I think that's where a lot of times Christians get. Uh, bait and switch. They think, oh, this is two people really love each other and they just want to live their lives together with each other. That's not what's going on in our culture. We have a very amoral, libertine culture. And I don't care if it's men and women or women and women and men and women. I mean, nobody really wants to stay together today. And so for us to fight for marriage and to fight for this is to fight for healthy relationships as well as protection for children, because our society literally depends on this. And all this is being lost in these euphemisms and bad law. And like you just pointed out, but this bad law 
could actually reorient our society into something that we probably won't recognize. So I guess at in the close here, what sh- I mean, what should we be doing? I, because it it puts a target on the back of every faithful, moral church, not just traditional. I think sometimes people hear tradition as, well, that's stuff that we can jettison because we're a more progressive people. No, this is, you devolve away from this moral truth. I mean, it, this is not going forward in any way, shape, or form. So we're going to talk about praying for that. Is it is it time to have a a lawyer on on a retainer for every congregation and church in the country? I mean, where are we going with this stuff? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and and yes, that's what we're looking at here for any church that wants to continue to be faithful in the proclamation of God's word and of the purpose mm-hmm. of marriage for any organization and individual that do. It's time to, um, yeah, to connect with Americans Defending Freedom and other nonprofit legal organizations that fight for people of faith, Um, because there's certainly still room that this is litigated in court and has continued to be pushed back and forth. But it is a bloody battle that certainly no one wants to enter into, um, because even if you win, you win with your, you know, clothes yeah. barely on your back and like barely getting it together here. And that's a big if. So one, you have to be prepared legally. But two, when it comes to how and what people of faith sh- could be praying about and should be praying about, um, I think first and foremost, it's a reminder uh, uh, like to be praying for the sovereignty of God, right? Like we know that that is simply the case that, that the Lord is in control and that even this vote for how disheartening um, and frustrating that it will be is certainly nothing that's outside of his control. Um, right. And that our God is a God, um, not only of eternity, but of history itself, who actively intervenes and delights to intervene on behalf of the prayers of his people. So there are no prayers that go wasted when it comes to praying for the senators, that their eyes would be opened, right? And that they would see the true nature of what's at stake here and that they would be convicted that the very values that they are publicly holding, they are not um, also then publicly holding in law, which is the calling that God's placed on their life. So calling them to account and that they would be faithful to the position that the Lord has given them is huge, but also praying that like the word of God would not return void. Scripture is filled with truth about the nature of marriage, about what is good for a nation and a nation that quite frankly repents and turns back. And so I think oftentimes when we think of all of the times throughout the Old Testament where the Israelites are required to repent and turn back, we're rightly thinking of Israelites who are living in idolatry and sin, but the repentance comes from the faithful Israelites and the unfaithful Israelites alike. And so I think that means that the faithful Christians begin that, right? And they begin that repentance on the part of their nation, asking for the favor and blessing and quite frankly, the mercy of God in these situations, because there's still so much that can be done. And there are still so many faithful policymakers and legislators who are working tirelessly to ensure that this bill isn't passed. And if it is passed, that there are other outlets for recourse that we can pursue. But I think praying for that encouragement, praying for that favor, and praying for those quite lucky coincidences that we know happen in law um, that are clearly the hand of providence, the hand of the Lord, to really come through in this moment. Because if this is passed, and if it's passed without the Lee Amendment, we're looking at a fundamental change for the way that Americans and religious liberty will function heretofore going forward. And that's no small thing. Um, yeah, like this, basically like this is the time to pray if there was ever a time yeah, to be praying is. over the future of your nation and the direction it goes. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I love what you said. And obviously we believe the same things that God is involved. He He preserves and, and he saves the world on his terms. 
And we just want to keep that uh, that dialogue about how God works. It, it, we want to keep it at that dialogical level. And what's happening here is the coercive power of the states coming and saying, no, no, we're going to determine what dialogue you can even have. And so whether it's people who live in the lifestyle or whether it's people who have different views of marriage, I still want to be able to dialogue with them, tell them about the God who actually created and redeemed them and gave them purpose. And But I don't want to talk about it with, with one hand tied behind my back or on the way to prison because we've been coerced into a corner out of the dialogue stage and now the state power has been harnessed uh, against us and one last thing you know we say this Emma you know good government cannot save us but bad government can destroy us and I think you know we're at that kind of pivotal moment uh, on some of these cultural issues and gosh for the state to get involved and start redefining all these things it's a time for prayer well thank you for your work Emma thanks for for being on the program today Absolutely. Thank you for your work and your prayers in this. Thanks for tuning in today. To get to know our LCRLDC work better, check out our website at lcrlfreedom.org. Contained there are resources to empower your public square dynamic discipleship. Or check out our weekly Word from the Center opinion piece every Friday at facebook.com forward slash lcrlfreedom. Till next time, God bless you always. I'm Greg Seltz. Have a great week. You've been listening to Liberty Action Alert with Greg Seltz, Executive Director of the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty in Washington, D.C. This program has been brought to you by the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty. 